Section 12 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, by Shimon Dubnov. Translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim. Manikt Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 18. The Era of Reforms under Alexander II. Part 1. 1. The Abolition of Juvenile Conscription. When, after the Crimean War, which had exposed the rottenness of the older order of things, a fresh current of air swept through the atmosphere of Russia, and the liberation of the peasantry and other great reforms were coming to fruition, the Jewish problem, too, was in line of being placed in the forefront of these reforms. For after having done away with the institution of serfdom, the state was consistently bound to liberate its three million Jewish serfs, who had been ruthlessly oppressed and persecuted during the old regime. Unfortunately, the Jewish question, which was nothing more nor less than the question of equal citizenship for the Jews, was not placed in the line of great reforms, but was pushed to the rear and solved fragmentarily on the installment plan, as it were, and within narrowly circumscribed limits. Like all the other officially inspired reforms of that period, which proceeded up to a certain point and halted before the prohibited zone of constitutional and political liberties, so too the solution of the Jewish problem was not allowed to pass beyond the borderline. For the crossing of that line would have rendered the whole question null and void by the simple recognition of the equality of all citizens. The regenerated Russia of Alexander II stubborn in its refusal of political freedom and civil equality, could only choose the path of half-measures. Nevertheless, the transition from the pre-reformatory order of things to the new state of affairs signified a radical departure both in the life of Russia in general and in Jewish life in particular. It did so not because the new conditions were perfect, but because the old ones were so inexpressibly ugly and unbearable, and the mere loosening of the chains of servitude was hailed as a pledge of complete liberation. Far more intense than the political life of Russia was the crisis in its social life. While a chilling wind was still blowing from the wintry heights of Russian officialdom, while a grim censorship was still holding down the flight of the printed word, the released social energy was hurling and swirling in all classes of Russian society, sometimes breaking the fetters of police restraint. The outbursts of young Russia ran far ahead of the slow progress of the reforms inspired from above. It blazed the path for political freedom which the West of Europe had long transposed and which was to prove in Russia tortuous and thorny. 
the phase of Jewish life which claimed the first thought of Alexander II's government was the military conscription. Prior to the conclusion of the Crimean War, the Committee on Jewish Affairs called the Tsar's attention to the necessity of modifying the method of Jewish conscription with its fiendish contrivances of seizing juvenile contonists and enlisting penal and captive recruits. Nevertheless, the removal of this crying evil was postponed for a year until the promulgation of the Coronation Manifesto of August 26, 1856, when it was granted as an act of grace. Prompted by the desire, the Manifesto reads, of making it easier for the Jews to discharge their military duty and of averting the inconveniences attached thereto, we commend as follows. 1. Recruits from among the Jews are to be drafted in the same way as from among the other estates, primarily from among those unsettled and not engaged in productive labor. Only in default of able-bodied men among these, the shortage is to be made up from among the category of Jews, who, by reason of their engaging in productive labor, are recognized as useful. 2. The drafting of recruits from among other estates and of those under age is to be repealed. 3. In regard to the making of the shortage of recruits, the general laws are to be applied, and the exaction of recruits from Jewish communities as a penalty for arrears is to be repealed. 4. The temporary rules, enacted by way of experiment in 1853, granting Jewish communities and Jewish individuals the right of presenting as recruits in their own stead, co-religionists seized without passport are to be repealed. The abolition of Jewish conscription followed automatically upon the annulment, by virtue of the same coronation manifesto, of the general Russian institution of Cantonists and soldier children, who are now ordered to be returned to their parents and relatives. Only in the case of the Jews, a rider was attached to the effect that those Jewish children who have embraced Christianity during their term of military service should not be allowed to go back to their parents and relatives if the latter remained in their old faith and should be placed exclusively in Christian families. The Coronation Manifesto of 1856 marks the end of the recruiting inquisition, which had lasted for nearly 30 years adding a unique page to the annals of Jewish martyrdom. In the matter of conscription, at least, the Jews were, in a certain measure, granted equal rights. The operation of the general statute concerning military service was extended to them, with a few limitations which were the heritage of the past. The old plan of the assortment of the Jews is reflected in the clause of the Manifesto, providing for increased conscription from among those unsettled and not engaged in productive labor, i.e. of the mass of the proletariat, as distinct from the more or less well-to-do classes. 
nor was the old historic crime made good. The Jewish Cantonists, who had been forcibly converted to the Greek Orthodox faith, were not allowed to return to their kindred. As heretofore, baptism remained a conditio sine qua non for the advancement of Jewish soldiers, and only in 1861 was permission given to promote a Jewish private to the rank of a sergeant for general merit, without special distinction on the battlefield which had been formerly required. Beyond this rank, no Jew could hope to advance. 2. Homeopathic Emancipation and the Policy of Fusion Following upon the removal of the black stain of conscription came the question of lightening the yoke of slavery, that heavy burden of rightlessness which pressed so grievously upon the outcasts of the Jewish pale. Already in March 1856, Count Kiselev, a semi-liberal official and formerly the president of the Jewish Committee, which had been appointed in 1840 and which was composed of the heads of the various ministries, submitted a memorandum to Alexander II in which he took occasion to point out that the attainment of the goal indicated in the imperial ukase of 1840, that of bringing about the fusion of the Jews with the general population, is hampered by various provisionally enacted restrictions which, when taken in conjunction with the general laws, contain contradictions and engender confusion. The result was an imperial order dated March 31, 1856, to revise all existing regulations affecting the Jews so as to bring them into harmony with the general policy of fusing these people with the original inhabitants, as far as the moral status of the Jews may render it possible. The same ministers who had taken part in the labors of the Jewish committee were instructed to draft a plan looking to the modification of the laws affecting the Jews and to submit their suggestions to the Tsar. In this way, the inception of the new reign was marked by a characteristic slogan, the fusion of the Jews with the Russian people to be promoted by the alleviation in their legal status. The way leading to this fusion was in the judgment of Russian officialdom blocked by the historic unity of the Jewish nation, a unity which in government phraseology was styled Jewish separatism and interpreted as the effect of the inferior moral status of the Jews. At the same time, it was implied that the Jews with better morals, i.e., those who have shown a leaning toward Russification, might be accorded special legal advantages over their retrograde co-religionists. From that moment, the bureaucratic circles of St. Petersburg became obsessed with the idea of picking out special groups from among the Jewish population, distinguished by financial and educational qualifications, for the purpose of bestowing upon them certain rights and privileges. It was the old coin, Nicholas' idea of the assortment of the Jews with the new legend stamped upon it. 
Formerly it had been intended to penalize the useless or unsettled burghers by intensifying their rightlessness. Now this plan gave way to the policy of rewarding the useful elements by enlarging their rights or reducing their rightlessness. The objectionable principle upon which this whole system was founded, the division of a people into categories of favorites and outcasts, remained in full force. There was only a difference in degree. The threat of legal restrictions for the disobedient was replaced by holding out promises of legal alleviations for the obedient. A small group of influential Jewish merchants in St. Petersburg, which stood in close relations to the highest official spheres, the purveyor and banker, Baron Joseph Yotzel Ginzburg, and others seized eagerly upon this idea which bade fair to shower privileges upon the well-to-do classes. In June 1856, this group addressed a petition to Alexander II complaining about the disabilities which weighed so heavily upon all Jews, from the artisan to the first guild merchant, from the private soldier to the master of art, and forced them down to the level of a degraded, suspected, untolerated tribe. At the same time, they assured the Tsar that were the government to give a certain amount of encouragement to the Jews, the latter would gladly meet it halfway and help in the realization of its policy to draw the Jews nearer to the original inhabitants and turn them in the direction of productive labor war the petitioners declare the new generation which has been brought up in the spirit and under the control of the government were the higher mercantile class which for many years has diffused life activity and wealth in the land were the conscientious artisans who earned their bread in the sweat of their brow to receive from the government as a mark of distinction larger rights than those who have done nothing to attest their well-meaningness, usefulness, and industry than the whole Jewish people, seeing that these few favored ones are the object of the government's righteousness and benevolence and model of what it desires the Jews to become, would joyfully hasten to attain the goal marked out by the government. Our present petition, therefore, is to the effect that our gracious sovereign may bestow his kindness upon us and by distinguishing the grain from the chaff may be pleased to accord a few moderate privileges to the most educated among us to wit one equal rights with the other russian subjects or with the karaite jews to the educated and well-deserving jews who possess the title of honorary citizens to the merchants affiliated for a number of years with the first or second guild and distinguished by their business integrity to the soldiers who have served irreproachably in the army two the right of residence outside the pale of settlement to the best among the artisans who possess laudatory certificates from the trade unions the privileges thus accorded to the best among us will help to realize the consummation of the governments that the sharply marked trait 
which distinguish the Jews from the native Russians should be leveled, and that the Jews should, in their way of thinking and acting, become akin to the latter. Once placed outside the secluded pale, the Jews will succeed in adopting from the genuine Russians the praiseworthy qualities by which they are distinguished, and the striving for culture and useful endeavor will become universal. The petition reflects the humiliating attitude of men who were standing on the boundary line between slavery and freedom, whose cast of mind had been formed under the regime of oppression and caprice. Pointing to the example of the West, where the bestowal of equal rights had contributed to the success of Jewish assimilation, the St. Petersburg petitioners were not even courageous enough to demand equal rights as the price of assimilation and professed, perhaps from diplomatic consideration, to content themselves with miserable crumbs of rights and privileges for the best among us. They failed to realize the meanness of their suggestion to divide the nation into best and worst, into those worthy of a human existence and those unworthy of it. 3. The extension of the right of residence. After some wavering, the government decided to adopt the method of picking the best. The intention of the authorities was to apply the gradual relaxation of Jewish rightlessness not to groups of restrictions, but to groups of persons. The government entered upon the scheme of abolishing or elevating certain restrictions not for the whole Jewish population, but merely for a few useful sections within it. Three such sections were marked off from the rest. Merchants of the First Guild, university graduates, and incorporated artisans. The resuscitated Committee for the Amelioration of the Jews displayed an intense activity during that period, 1856 to 1863. For fully two years, 1857 to 1859, the question of granting the right of permanent residence in the interior governments to merchants of the First Guild occupied the attention of that committee and of the Council of State. The committee had originally proposed to restrict these privileges by imposing a series of exceedingly onerous conditions. Thus, the merchants intending to settle in the Russian interior were to be required to have belonged to the first guild within the pale for ten years previously, and they were to be allowed to leave the pale only after securing in each case a permit from the Minister of the Interior and of Finance. But the Council of State found that, circumscribed in this manner, the privilege would benefit only a negligible fraction of the Jewish merchant class. There were altogether 108 Jewish First Guild merchants within the pale, and therefore considered it necessary to reduce the requirements for settling in the interior. A long succession of meetings of this august body was taken up with the perplexing problem how to attract big Jewish capital into the central government, 
and at the same time safeguard the latter against the excessive influx of Jews who, for the sake of settling there, would register in the first guild and under the disguise of relatives would bring with them, as one of the members of the council put it, the whole tribe of Israel. After protracted discussions, a resolution was adopted which was in substance as follows. The Jewish merchants who have belonged to the first guild for not less than two years prior to the issuance of this present law shall be permitted to settle permanently in the interior governments, accompanied by their families and a limited number of servants and clerks. These merchants shall be entitled to live and trade on equal terms with the Russian merchants, with the proviso that after settlement they shall continue their membership in the first guild, as well as their payment of the appertaining membership dues for no less than ten years, failing which they shall be sent back into the pale. Big Jewish merchants and bankers from abroad noted for their social position, shall be allowed to trade in Russia under a special permit to be secured in each case from the ministers of the interior and of finance. The resolution of the Council of State was sanctioned by the Tsar on March 16, 1859, and thus became law. In this manner, the way was opened for big Jewish capital to enter the two Russian capitals and the tabut interior. The advent of the big capitalists was followed by the influx of their less fortunate brethren, who, driven by material want from the pale, was forced to seek new domiciles and, in the shape of first guild dues, paid for many years a heavy toll for their right of residence and commerce. The position of these merchants offers numerous points of contact with the status of the tolerated Jewish merchants in Vienna and Lower Austria prior to 1848. Toleration having been granted to the Jews with the proper financial status, the government proceeded to extend the same treatment to persons with educational qualifications. The latter class was the subject of protracted debate in the Jewish committee as well as in the ministries and in the Council of State. As early as in 1857, the Minister of Public Instruction, Norov, had submitted a memorandum to the Jewish committee in which he argued that religious fanaticism and prejudice among the Jews could only be exterminated by inducing the Jewish youth to enter the general educational establishment, which end can only be obtained by enlarging their civil rights and by offering them material advantages. Accordingly, Norov suggested that the right of residence in the whole Russian Empire should be granted to the graduates of the higher and secondary educational institutions. Those Jews who should have failed to attend school were to be restricted in their rights of entering the mercantile guilds. The Jewish community refused to limit the rights of those who did not attend the general schools and proposed instead 
as a bait for the Jews who shunned secular education to confer special privileges in the discharge of military service upon those Jews who had attended the gymnasia or even the Russian district schools or the Jewish crown schools. More exactly, to grant them the right of buying themselves off from conscription by the payment of 100 to 200 rubles, 1859. But the military department vetoed this proposal on the ground that education would thus bestow privileges upon Jews which were denied even to Christians. The suggestion relating to military privileges was therefore abandoned and the promotion of education among Jews reduced itself to an extension of the right of residence. In this connection, the Jewish community warmly debated the question as to whether the right of residence outside the pale should be accorded to graduates of the higher and secondary educational institutions or only to those of the higher. The ministers of the interior and public instruction, Lanskoy and Kovalevsky, advocated the former more liberal interpretation, but the majority of the committee members acting in the interests of graduated emancipation rejected the idea of bestowing the universal right of residence upon the graduates of gymnasia and lyceum, and even upon those of universities and other institutions of higher learning, with exception of those who had received a learned degree, doctor, magister, or candidate. The committee was willing, on the other hand, to permit the possessor of a learned degree not only to settle in the interior, but also to enter the civil service. The Jewish university graduate was thus expected to submit a scholarly paper or even a doctor's dissertation for two purposes, for procuring the right of residence in some Siberian locality and for the right of serving the state. Particular circumspection was recommended by the committee with reference to Jewish medical men. A Jewish physician without a degree of MD was not to be permitted to pass beyond the pale. In this shape, the question was submitted to the Council of State in 1861. Here, opinions were evenly divided. Twenty members advocated the necessity of bestowing the right of residence not only on graduates of universities but also of gymnasia, advancing the argument that even in the case of Jewish gymnasists, it is in all likelihood to be presumed that the gross superstitions and prejudices which hinder the association of the Jews with the original population of the empire will be, if not entirely eradicated, at least considerably weakened, and a further surgeon among Christians will contribute toward the ultimate extermination of these sinister prejudices which stand in the way of every moral improvement. Such was the opinion of the liberal half of the Council of State. The conservative half argued differently. Only those Jews deserve the right of residence who have received an education such as may serve as a pledge of their having renounced the errors of fanaticism. The wise measures adopted as a precaution against the influx of Jews into the interior governments would lose their efficacy, 
were permission to settle all over Russia to be granted suddenly to all Jews who have for a short term attended a gymnasium in the western and southwestern region for no other purpose, to be sure, than that of pursuing on a larger scale their illicit trades and other harmful occupations. Hence, only Jews with a reliable education, i.e., the graduates of higher educational institutions who have obtained the learned degree, should be permitted to pass the boundary of the pale. Alexander II endorsed the opinion of the conservative members of the Council of State. The law, promulgated on November 27, 1861, reads as follows. Jews possessing certificates of the learned degree of Doctor of Medicine and Surgery or Doctor of Medicine and likewise of Doctor, Magister or Candidate of other university faculties are admitted to serve in all government offices without their being confined to the pale established for the residence of Jews. They are also permitted to settle permanently in all the provinces of the empire for the pursuit of commerce and industry. In addition, the law specifies that, apart from the members of their families, these Jews shall be permitted to keep, as a maximum, two domestic servants from among their co-religionists. The promulgation of this law brought about curious state of affairs, the upshot of the genuinely Russian homeopathic system of emancipation. A handful of Jews who had obtained learned degrees from universities were permitted not only to reside in the interior of the empire, but also admitted here and there to government service in the capacity of civil and military physicians. Yet, both of these rights were denied to all other persons with the same university education, physicians and active students who had not obtained learned degrees. On one occasion, the Minister of Public Instruction put before the Council of State the following legal puzzle. A Jewish student, while attending the University of Russian capital, enjoys the right of residence there, but when he has successfully finished his course and has obtained the customary certificate without the learned degree, he forfeits his right and must return to the pale. Yet, the government in its stubbornness refused to make concessions, and when it was forced to make them, it did so rather in its own interest than in that of the Jews. Owing to the scarcity of medical help in the army and in the interior, new cases issued in 1865 and 1867 declared Jewish physicians, even without the title of doctor of medicine, to be admissible to the medical cause and later on to civil service in all places of the empire except the capitals St. Petersburg and Moscow. Nevertheless, the extension of the plain rights of domicile without admission to civil service remained for a long time dependent on a learned degree. It was only after two decades of hesitation that the law of January 19, 1879 conferred the right of universal residence on all categories of persons with the higher education, regardless of the nature of the diploma, and also including pharmacists, dentists, 
felt shares and midwives. The privileges bestowed upon the big merchants and titled intellectuals affected but a few small groups of the Jewish population. The authorities now turned their attention to the mass of the people and, in accordance with its rules of political homeopathy, commenced to pick from it a handful of persons for better treatment. The question of admitting Jewish artisans into the Russian interior occupied the government for a long time. In 1856, Lanskoy, the Minister of the Interior, entered into an official correspondence concerning this matter with the governors general and governors of the western provinces. Most of the replies were favorable to the idea of conferring upon Jewish artisans the right of universal residence. Of the three governors general, whose opinion had been invited to the governor general of Vilna, was the only one who thought that the present situation needed no change. His colleague of Kiev, Count Vasilchkov, was, on the contrary, of the opinion that it would be a rational measure to transfer the surplus of the Jewish artisans who were cooped up within the pale and had been pauperized by excessive competition to the interior governments where there was a scarcity of skilled labor. Footnote. The official statistics of that time, about the year 1860, brought out the fact that the number of Jews in the 15th government of Pale of the Settlement, exclusive of the Kingdom of Poland, but inclusive of the Baltic region, amounted to 1,430,800, forming 8% of the total population of that territory. The number of artisans in the Jewish governments was far greater than in the Russian interior. Thus, in the government of Kiev, there were to be found 2.06 artisans to every thousand inhabitants, against 0.8 in the nearby government of Krusk, i.e. 2% times more. In reality, the number of Jews in the western region without the Kingdom of Poland exceeded considerably one and one-half millions there being no regular registration at that time. End of footnote. A surprisingly liberal pronouncement came from the Governor-General of New Russia, Count Stroganov. In the world of Russian officialdom professing the dogma of gradation and caution in the question of Jewish rights, he was the only one who had the courage to raise his voice on behalf of complete Jewish emancipation. He wrote, the existence in our times of restrictions in the rights of the Jews as compared with the Christian population in any shape or form is neither in accord with the spirit and tendency of the age nor with the policy of the government looking toward the amalgamation of the Jews with the original population of the empire. The Count, therefore, concluded that it was necessary to permit the Jews to live in all the places of the empire and engage without any restrictions and unequal terms with all Russian subjects in such craft and industries as they themselves may choose in accordance with their habits and abilities. It is scarcely necessary to add that the bold voice of the Russian dignitary 
who in a lucid interval spoke of in a manner reminiscent of civilized West, was not listened to by the bureaucrats of St. Petersburg. Nevertheless, as far as the specific question of Jewish artisans was concerned, the favorable replies were bound to have a decisive effect. However, red tape sluggishness managed to retard the decision for several years. In 1863, the question was referred back to the Jewish committee only a short time before the dissolution of that body, which for a quarter of a century had perpetrated every conceivable experiment over the amelioration of the Jews. Thence, the matter was transferred to the Committee of Ministers and finally to the Council of State. In the ministerial body, Valuev, Minister of the Interior, favored the idea of granting the right of settling outside the pale to Jewish artisans and mechanics, dependent on certain conditions, by practicing caution and endeavoring to avert the rapid influx into the midst of the population of the interior governments of an element hitherto foreign to it. In reply to Baron Koff, who had advocated the admission of the Jewish artisans beyond the pale, not only with their families, but also with Jewish domestics, Valuev argued that this privilege will enable Jewish businessmen of all kinds to reside in the interior governments under the guise of employees of their co-religionists. The Jews, according to Valuev, will endeavor to transfer their activity to a field economically more favorable to them, and it goes without saying that they will not fail to seize the first best opportunity of exploiting the places of the empire hitherto inaccessible to them. The Council of State passed law in the formulation of the Ministry of the Interior, adding the necessary precaution against the entirely legitimate endeavor of Jewish businessmen to transfer their activity to a field economically more favorable to them. After nine years of preparation, on June 28, 1865, Alexander II finally gave his sanction to the law permitting Jewish artisans, mechanics, and distillers, including apprentices, to reside all over the empire. Both in the wording of the law and in its subsequent application, the privilege was hatched about by numerous safeguards. Thus, the artisan who wished to settle outside the pale had to produce not only a certificate from his trade union testifying to his professional ability, but also a testimony from the police that he was not under trial. At stated intervals, he had to procure a passport from his native town in the Pale, since outside the Pale, his status was that of a temporary resident. In his new place of residence, he was permitted to deal only in the wares of his own workmanship. If he happened to be out of work, he was to be sent back to the Pale. While opening a valve in the suffocating pail, the government took good care to prevent the artificially pent-up Jewish energy from rushing through it. However, he being cooped up for so long, the Jews began to press through the opening. In the wake of the artisans, who on account of the indicated restrictions of the law or because of the lack of traveling expenses 
emigrated in comparatively small numbers, followed the commercial proletariat using criminal disguise of artisans in order to transfer their energies to a field economically more favorable to them. The position of these people was tragic. The fictitious artisans became the tributaries of the local police, depending entirely on its favor or disfavor. The detection of such criminals outside the pale was followed by their expulsion and the confiscation of their merchandise. As a matter of fact, the Russian government did everything in its power to stem the influx of Jews into the interior. Only with the greatest reluctance did it widen the range of the privileged Jewish groups. The Tsar himself, held in the throes of the old Muscovite tradition, frequently put his veto upon the proposals to enlarge the area of Jewish residence. A striking illustration of this attitude may be found in the case of the retired Jewish soldiers who, after discharging their galley-like army service over a quarter of a century, were expelled from the places where they had been stationed and sent back into the Pale. To the report submitted in 1858 by the Jewish Committee, pointing out the necessity of granting the right of universal residence to these soldiers, the Tsar attached the resolution. I decidedly refused to grant it. When petitions to the same effect became more insistent, all he did was to permit in 1860, by way of exemption, a group of retired soldiers who had served in St. Petersburg in the bodyguard to remain in the capital. Ultimately, however, he was obliged to yield, and in 1867 he revoked the law prohibiting retired Jewish soldiers to live outside the pale. Thus, after long wavering, the right of domicile was finally bestowed upon the so-called Nicholas soldiers and their offspring, a rather niggardly reward for having served the fatherland under the terrible hardships of the old form of conscription. End of section 12